without further ado, let's go ahead and we'll, uh, we'll jump in. So we're going to be reading in Exodus 20, um, and we are going to be reading the first 17 verses. Um, looks like in your handout, we've only got the first seven, probably because I failed to mention that I was going to read it in its entirety, but that's okay. Uh, I'll read the whole thing, and, and uh, you guys can just kind of follow along with what you have. Um, these are the words of God. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you once again, and Lord, we are grateful that you don't leave us to, uh, to wonder um, what pleases you. You don't leave us, uh, once you, you redeem us and rescue us, Father God, you don't uh, just expect us to figure it out on our own. But Father, you give us your word and you've given us your commandments, Lord, to teach us what true righteousness looks like. So, Father, as we spend these next few weeks studying uh, this passage, God, I ask that you would be here in this place. I ask that you would be uh, convicting us of areas where we fall short. I pray that you would encourage us in ways that we are doing well. And, Lord, above all, we ask that you would not allow us to remain unchanged by your word, but rather that we would be continually transformed from one degree of glory to another into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen. So we're starting this new series um, called Ten Words. And the, the phrase ten words is just a, another way of describing 
the Ten Commandments. Um, sometimes they're called, you know, the Ten Words, or sometimes they're called the Decalogue, right? There's these different terms that are used to, uh, to describe these Ten Commandments that we see um, in, in this particular section of Scripture. And so the part of the reason why I wanted to do this series uh, there's, there's kind of two things that inform my desire to share this, this passage with you. One is in our modern evangelical context, it seems like there are a lot of leaders who are treating the Old Testament as though it is irrelevant for the Christian life. I know of one specific pastor, I won't say what his name is, but he has actually said that the, old, that the Christians should no longer read the Old Testament, but they should only focus on the New Testament. And um, that's stupid. Uh, that is absolutely contrary to the way that the Bible speaks about itself. For instance, the Apostle Paul, when he says uh, that all Scripture is God-breathed, I think I was just talking about this with someone recently. I can't remember if it was you, Allie, or if I was talking to someone else. Um, But he says all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness. And what Paul is talking about there, he's not talking about the New Testament only because the New Testament hadn't even been finished yet. So what Paul is referring to is he's talking about the Old Testament, And he's saying that the Old Testament is relevant and useful for all of those things. So it makes my blood boil when I hear people say that the Old Testament is irrelevant to our lives today. Uh, The second reason that informs my desire for sharing this, uh, this section of Scripture with you guys and why you will always see me give you a mix of Old Testament and New Testament passages is because uh, when I was first discipled, I pretty much predominantly got New Testament. It wasn't until I went away to Bible college and, you know, went to seminary and all those different things where I really began to get a grasp on the, the overarching story of the Bible and uh, somewhat uh, of a grasp on the structure of the Old Testament. And I just, I don't want that for you guys. I want you guys to actually know your Bibles fairly well. And I don't want to uh, have you guys graduate in a couple years and say, you know, we didn't really learn anything from the Old Testament. We, we got a lot of New Testament, but we didn't really learn anything from the Old Testament. Um, that is just not where my heart is. I, would, I want you guys to, uh, as the Apostle Paul says, he says, I didn't shrink back from preaching to you the full counsel of God's word. And so that is my desire for you guys is that, is that I would preach to you the full counsel of God's word from the Old Testament and from the New Testament. And so tonight, as we're looking at this, uh, the first seven verses, um, what we are covering is essentially the first three commandments in the, in the, the, the big ten or the ten words. Um, and so the main theme that you see running through this first, this first section, uh, and this is what I want you guys to write down and to remember, is that a covenant with the living God ends your attachment to false gods. A covenant with the living God ends your attachment to false gods. Recently on, uh, on some certain channels, they've been playing the Olympics. And uh, have any of you guys been watching a little bit of the Olympics at all? 
kind of, sort of. Okay. Um, and so as I was, as I was kind of seeing the commercials for it and, and thinking about this, this message, I was thinking about the reality that as an Olympic athlete, that desire to, to get to that level of skill requires you to change your entire lifestyle. You have to be completely devoted to the sport and you reorient your sleep, the way that you eat, the way that you exercise, all of it around this commitment to this sport because you want to be the best, right? If you're an Olympic athlete, I don't have the discipline to try and uh, get good at some sort of a sport like that. Also, I'm out of shape, so I don't really, uh, don't really uh, have a desire for that at all. Um, but as I was thinking about that, what we encounter in this passage is the reality that uh, God is entering into a covenant with the people of Israel, okay? And what he is asking of them is, is that level of commitment, that the commitment to the point where they literally their entire life is changed and reoriented around this relationship that Israel has with Yahweh, and so in this passage, uh, to give you guys some context, because I know we just kind of dropped right in the middle of Exodus. Um, so in the story of Exodus, who is one of the main characters that you guys can think of? Yeah. Moses, exactly. Yes. So Moses is one of the main characters. He's kind of the, one of the heroes that God raises up, and he sends Moses to the people of Israel. And uh, he, he kind of has Moses be the leader to bring them out of slavery in Egypt, right? And you guys have, if you've been around church, you've heard the story of, of Moses going to the Pharaoh and he's like, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, no. And so God's like, all right, plagues. And so there's like these 10 plagues that happen. This is the abridged version. Um, uh, <laughs> these pla- these pla- <laughs> plagues. <laughs> uh, I yeah yeah. Anyway, um, I was, had that song from uh, the Prince of Egypt. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so let my heart be hardened. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, anyway, um, it's a great song. Um, but uh, so all these these plagues happen, and God. Um, God miraculously delivers Israel from this, this slavery situation in, in fulfillment of a promise that he actually gave to Abraham uh, 400 and some odd years prior. But um, so he brings them out, they go into the desert and they're in this place where there's no food and no water and they start complaining and Moses is like, ah, these guys are so mad, they're gonna stone me to death, right? And then God miraculously provides food and water in the desert, right? And finally, where we come to in chapter 20 is where Moses and the people, they've got to a place called Mount Sinai, which is where God uh, and Moses, Moses travels up the mountain and he meets with God and God gives him his 10 commandments that the people are to follow. Now, what you guys need to know is that this is fundamentally a covenantal structure, what we are seeing here in this passage. Um, In every covenant in the ancient world, there was what's called a preamble, which is kind of like a... uh, uh, a history, if you will. For instance, if you look at verse two, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so in this preamble, essentially what is, is happening is 
God is saying, this is what I have done for you. And then what follows is how the people are to respond to what God has done. And so in every covenant, you have kind of a little bit of a history of the relationship. And then you have the stipulations or the obligations that are required of the other party, right? So in every covenant, each, each side has responsibilities, okay? And so in the Ten Commandments, uh, what we are seeing is Israel's responsibility to her covenant relationship with God. Does that make sense? Okay. And so with all of that said, we want to ask the question, what does this passage teach us about how God's covenant people should live? Because you and I, we are also God's covenant people. In Romans 11, it talks about how we have actually been grafted into the tree that is Israel, right? So we, as Gentiles, I assume none of us are Jews in the room? Okay, cool. I figured. Uh, But we, as Gentiles, have been grafted into the covenant people of God. And so the immediate question that should come to our mind is, okay, how do we, how do we live, right? Once we have been brought out of sin, once we've been brought out of slavery to sin, the question that we should be asking ourselves is, how should we then live in response to this amazing grace that we have been shown? How should we respond to the gospel that has rescued us? And this passage gives us some really practical ways for us to respond to the gospel. Because I feel like it can be really easy for you, for Christians to, to get saved and then just be like, okay, well, what do I do now, right? The Bible, you know, other, you'll hear other believers say, well, you know, uh, do better or, you know, try and, try and live like Jesus. And then it's like, okay, but what are some concrete ways? Like, what does that look like when you flesh it out? Well, it looks like the Ten Commandments. It, God gives us his law to show us what righteousness is, what justice is. In fact, in Deuteronomy, when these laws are actually repeated, God says, for you as my people, if you do these things, these things are justice. So if you've ever wondered what it looks like to do justice in the world, it looks like living by the Ten Commandments. But I want to stress that living by the Ten Commandments is a response to grace, not a way to earn grace, okay? That's important because I don't want you guys to walk away from this saying, okay, well, here's these ten things that I've got to do, and if I do them, then God will save me. No, God saves you first by grace through faith on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, and then... And then we respond to that, but only because God has changed our hearts and given us the desire to respond. And so this, uh, there is this tension between the law and the gospel. And that this is kind of um, what we are dealing with as we are trying to, uh, trying to apply this passage. Um, there is a lot of people throughout church history that have struggled with the relationship between the law of God and the gospel. And an illustration that I heard Sinclair Ferguson gave one time or give one time um, that was really good is if you think of, if you think of uh, train tracks in a train, okay? The law of God is the train tracks, okay? 
It's the direction that, that we were supposed to go. But because of sin, we are like a train that doesn't actually have a locomotive, doesn't have the engine portion of it. We are unable to move forward. But because of the gospel, God gives us a new heart and gives us his Holy Spirit and enables that train to move forward because he then gives us the engine, which is the, the gospel of God empowered by the spirit of God to help us live out the way that we were always supposed to live. Now, all of that is like intro to our three points that we're talking about tonight. And so the first three things that this passage teaches us about how God's covenant people should then live in response to God's redemption are these, that we as God's people should live a life of loyalty to God. That's number one. We should live a life of loyalty to God. Second, we should appropriately worship God. And thirdly, we should reverently bear the name of God. Loyalty to God, appropriately worship God, and we should reverently bear the name of God. So look with me first at verse, at verse 2 and 3, where he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And so... What we are seeing here and what, what we've seen uh, throughout the book of Exodus is Moses is recounting for the people of God the events that transpire, transpired over a two-year period just outside of Egypt, okay? And so God rescues these people and he gives them this, this first command that has to do with worship, but um, specifically um, Israel would be tempted with, um, with a temptation to worship the gods of other cultures around them, okay? And so what God is doing is he is essentially saying, uh, in this first commandment, your loyalty should be to me, okay? This is, this is what he's saying. He's saying, I don't want you to go after other gods. I want you to be loyal to me, right? And obviously there's no such thing as other gods. They're all idols and, and false, false gods. But what's interesting about this phrase where he says, before me, that Hebrew phrase, it means literally before my face or in my presence. And so what God is saying there is he's saying, you should have no other gods in my presence. And where is God present? He's present everywhere. So he's saying that in every area that he is and in your life, there should be no other gods. It is this exclusive claim where he says, he says, Jack, you are mine. I have exclusive rights to you. That is what God is saying in this, this section here. And it would be like, if uh, imagine that uh, imagine that you got married, just to give you a, an illustration of this, and uh, imagine one day your your husband or your your wife comes home and they say to you, um, "I know that that we that we kind of did that that married thing, but I still kind of want to go on dates with other people." That's cool, right? Obviously, that's not cool. 
And so what God is saying here is he's saying, you have made a covenant commitment to me, the true and living God. And by doing that, you have ended your attachment to any other false God out there. And the reality is, is that there are many false gods in our culture. They're not, they're not as uh, maybe as obvious as some of the false gods in the ancient culture where people would literally worship these, these images and these, uh, these idols. But there are things uh, that are idols that, um, that aren't necessarily made with human hands but they are formed in our minds. So for instance, I'll give you some examples of, of common idols that our Western culture worships today. Power, right? You have all of these people who want to be influencers, want to have other people respect them, they want to have control, and this desire for power consumes their thoughts, their their will, their desires, and their choices to the point where if, if it is consuming all of those things, this, this desire for power, at that point, it is functionally your God. You are worshiping that thing. Another example uh, is wealth. We live in a very wealthy country, and the American dream lures lots of people. The, the promise of money and wealth and you know, having all of this stuff. But here's the problem. If that is your main ambition in life, it's an idol. It's a false god that you are worshiping. The same is true for uh, success or for self. If you are so constantly thinking of yourself and what other people think of you and how you look and, and all that kind of stuff, you are your own idol in that moment. The same, you know, the same can be said for sports and for uh, the attention of other people. These things that, that dominate our thoughts, desires, and our choices are false gods, and our covenant relationship with the true God means that we are no longer allowed to worship those things. They are no longer allowed to dominate our thoughts, our desires, and our choices because we now belong to the triune God. And so we now need to, uh, by the power of the Spirit, and as we think about the gospel, have these new desires. Desires that primarily focus on worshiping God and all of the rest of the details of our lives are, are lower on the priority list. And so a good way for you to ask if something is a, a false God in your life, if something is an idol, is how much time does whatever thing, uh, whatever... Um, thing you might be thinking about, how much time does it consume of your life? How much of your thoughts does this thing consume of your life? How much of your desires are oriented around this thing? And how many of your choices that you make are oriented around this, this thing? If you can look at something in your life and you can say that, that the majority of your thoughts 
The majority of your desires and the majority of your choices are oriented around this thing, and that thing is not Jesus Christ, is not God. It's an idol. And so I would just encourage you guys, as you are thinking through these next few weeks and as we are looking at these commandments that God gives to us, we should all be examining our lives and asking ourselves, what takes up the majority of my thoughts? What do I want most of the time? And what do my choices reveal about what and who, what or who I am worshiping? So secondly, the second commandment that we see is that God calls his people to appropriately worship him. If you look at verses four and five, he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the, iniqui- the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. And so God moves into his second commandment, which has to do with literal idols, right? These carved images, which was actually fairly common in the ancient world. In fact, uh, a few chapters later, Moses is up on the mountain so long receiving these Ten Commandments, he comes down and Israel has actually made an idol. And Aaron, his, uh, Moses' brother, is like, this idol is the God who delivered you out of Egypt. So God is literally giving them this command, don't make idols. And then Moses comes down and they've made an idol. And then he breaks the Ten Commandments. And then he has to go back up and get him again, right? He has to write him down again because he's so frustrated at the fact that these guys literally made an idol, right? As God was saying, don't make idols. Um, <laughs> but this, this um, practice of, of creating an image was fairly common because people wanted uh, some sort of physical thing that represented the divine, that, that represented a, a deity, right? And so the reason that God forbids this is because he is infinitely greater than anything that our imaginations can come up with or that the physical world can represent. He is infinitely greater than anything that our imaginations can come up with or what the physical world can portray through uh, precious metals or whatever, or wood or stone. Someone commenting on this passage said that the first commandment is that we must worship the true God. The second one is that we worship the true God truly. So the first one has to do with with whom we worship, and the second one has to do with how we worship. And so the point that this, this commandment is making is that God is the one who gets to decide how he is worshipped. And I just wanted to give a brief, a brief 
mention to verse 5, where he talks about the iniquity of the fathers being visited on the children to the third and fourth generation and showing steadfast love to thousands or another variant, uh, textual variant is to a thousand generations um, of those who love me and keep my commandments. What he's, he's not saying there is he's not saying that if your dad sins, uh, then you know, you're going to pay for it, your kids are going to pay for it, and then your great-grandkids are, you know, he's not saying that. What he's saying is something that we have actually all observed in real life is that parents have a, uh, a huge impact on the generations that follow. So if you are an unfaithful parent who, who is, breaks covenant with God, you will see the consequences of that played out in your kids, and your kids, the, the consequences of that will trickle down, right? Now, specifically, though, he's talking about people whom are not in covenant with him. And then he says, but showing steadfast love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So there is a ripple effect of righteousness as well. So if you follow Jesus closely, it has positive impacts in the lives of your kids. So as we think about this command, I want you guys to imagine that someone approaches you. Uh, let's say they approach Joel and they say, Joel, I think you're a really cool guy and, and uh, I want to write an autobiography about your life. And Joel's like, oh, man, that's pretty cool. I'd, I'd, I'd like that. I'd read that. And, uh, so, <laughs> and so, but then he, he comes to you with the, maybe the, the first draft and uh, he's changed your name. Uh, he's changed your age. He's made you a girl instead of a guy. And, uh, and he's, he's even changed where you were born. At that point, it is no longer your story, right? It is no longer your autobiography. And I share that because what God is saying is he's saying that when you worship me, I want you to be worshiping me, not some false image not some, some idea that you have in your head about who I am, but I want you to be worshiping the true God truly. And we are actually capable of being guilty of breaking this command as well. In fact, I have had conversations with people who, uh, in seeing a particular attribute of God, have actually said, well, I can't worship a God who would do such and such a thing, fill in the blank, right? Or I can't believe that God would allow that or that God would do this. And it is that kind of attitude that this passage is actually forbidding. God is saying, you are not permitted to have any image of me, any, any conception of me that you want. You must worship the true God as he is not as you would like him to be. And so my question for us is, is that our desire? Do we actually desire to worship God as he is? Or do we want to come up with maybe a different God? Maybe a God who's not truly sovereign. Maybe a God who uh, wouldn't send people to hell. We must worship God as he truly is, not as we would like him 
to be. And the third commandment that we see here in verse 7, where he says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guilty who takes his name in vain. So this third commandment uh, deals with how God's people represent him to the world. Okay? In the ancient world, names were more than just a, a title, but it actually, the name represented in some ways the very character of the person who bore that name. It, it, the, 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 the name told you something about the individual. Now, what's also interesting is that that Hebrew word there that we translate as take, it actually means to carry or to bear. And so the idea that's being conveyed here is not just uh, saying the Lord's name as a cuss word, but though that is actually included in it, because if you reverence, if you respect God's name, you won't do that, right? But what is also being and, uh, conveyed here and maybe primarily thought about is the reality that what God is saying is don't say that you belong to God and then act as though you don't. In other words, if you call yourself a Christian, let your conduct match that profession or don't call yourself a Christian. That is what God is saying. Now, I want to give a, a slight caveat to that and say, we are all sinners, okay? Amen? We, we are all sinners, and we will, we will fall short. We will bring, uh, at times, grief to the heart of God because we have called ourselves Christians and we have sinned against God. But what this is talking about is let the desire of your heart and the ambition of your life be to bear the name of Christian, to bear the name of God, of, some, of, of someone who is in relationship with God, and let, let that desire be uh, to, to glorify God, to bring God glory amongst all of the different relationships that you have in your life. I want you guys to imagine... Uh, Joel, imagine that you're, you're, uh, you're right here. I'm going to pick on you again. Um, oh, I want you to imagine that you're in a soccer game and you're you know, playing against another, another high school. Okay? But throughout the game, you have uh, constantly gotten in the way of other, other members of your own team, and you have actually scored uh, against <laughs> scored, scored a, a goal for the other team against your team. The natural question would be what? What do you think? Who, what team are you playing for, right? That would, be, that would be the natural question, okay? That's kind of like what this, this commandment is teaching us. If we live a life where we, are, we say we have the jersey, we say we're on the team, but we're always scoring for the other team and we're getting in the way of our other team members, we are not actually living like we are on team Jesus, so to speak. That is what it means to take the name of the Lord in vain. And what is included in that is using the Lord's name as a cuss word. But predominantly what God is talking about there is he's saying, I want you to live a life of integrity. I want the, the 
profession of faith that you make to be backed up by the content of your character. Your, war, your walk should match your talk. And so the question that I have for us is, as you are at school and as you are uh, thinking about this, this reality that, that you bear the name of Christ, do the things that you say and the things that you do, do they match the reality that you belong to God, that you bear the name of Christian? Or do they not match that profession of faith? I, just being honest with you guys, I definitely know that there are times in my life where my walk does not match my talk. And when we observe that in our lives, we need to come to God and we need to say we're sorry, we repent, and we ask God to help us to live more consistently with that identity of Christian. So that's a, a something that, that we should sit with as well, is asking the things that I say at school, the jokes that I make, the thoughts that I think, are those things consistent with the name Christian, consistent with someone who bears the, the family name, as we talked about last week, of God? So I want to close by just saying this, that... While our covenant with God, it does, it does end our, our attachment to false gods. Your salvation, your, your standing with God, your uh, remaining in covenant with him is not, is not uh, founded on your perfect obedience. You see, Jesus came and lived a perfect and sinless life, and he died a sinner's death, in our, both of which in our place, he upheld the covenant obligations in our place because he is our representative, specifically because he knew that you and I, weak and sinners though we are, would not be able to live up to those commandments, not be able to live up to God's standards. And so in love, Jesus came and he said, I will take on human flesh. I will perfectly uphold all of God's law and I will do it all for my people and then I will die in their place bearing the penalty for their law-breaking actions. And then he rose again to prove that when you and I come to Jesus, when you and I come and unite ourselves to Christ by placing our faith in him, I should say that the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ. Almost got a little bit of heresy there for a minute. Um, but when God unites us to himself, to Jesus as our representative, that is the source of our salvation. It is Christ and his work he keeps the law and he pays the penalty for our sins so that we can walk in newness of life, so that we can live out this, this law. Like we said at the beginning with the train, 
Jesus and his gospel are the engine that drive the Christian life. So with that said, and me going long-winded, let's pray and we'll go into our groups. Father, we come before you and we are grateful for your word. God, we are grateful that you teach us what it looks like to walk with you. You don't just save us and then say, figure it out. But Lord, you walk with us step by step. You teach us what it means to live a life of righteousness. So Lord, as we go into our groups, I pray that you would bless our time together. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.